As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and today I'm joined by a single solitary co-host to talk about the MLS weekend that was and answer some listener questions. That man is taking time away from doing between one and several hundred victory laps after single-handedly yes. landing for Lauren Balogun for the USMNT. Joe Lowry, how we feeling, buddy? I thought for a second that you were going to like not mention the Balogun thing in the intro, and I nah. was about to explode. Um, I'm doing great. I woke up at 6.30 this morning, which is sort of the usual time that I wake up, and I was going to get started on some work, and I checked my phone, and I have like nine messages in the Discord from people. <laughs> I have like five folks tweeting at me. Tom Bogert broke the news this morning that Florin Balogun had filed a switch to represent the United States men's national team which is absolutely massive. I think folks at this point know how highly I value Balogun to the point where I was pretty much willing to throw money at Thierry Henry to get Balogun on board. They don't even have to do that anymore, Taylor. U.S. soccer with, for most of this period of courting Balogun, with no GM, that's changed since then, uh, Aguji Onyewu has been added to U.S. soccer as well. But without those people really involved in the program, and with Anthony Hudson at the helm of the U.S. men's national team on the manager side, they've managed to snag Balogun. I I did not know if this was ever going to happen. I think this is a massive addition, probably the biggest thing that can happen for the U.S. between now and the 2026 World Cup. I, I'm on cloud nine, Taylor. I'm living I'm I'm living large over here, baby. Uh, I'm happy that you are happy, my friend. I too am pretty <laughs> pleased. Uh, I, I, with everything that you just said, it did make me wonder, like, how dysfunctional is England right now? And I'm assuming it's not dysfunctional. I'm assuming it's that basically they can't promise him. Any guarantees of call-ups or minutes playing for the national team at this point? I think Gareth Southgate has said uh, similar things in the past, but we're talking about 21-year-old forward, uh, played for the U.S. at youth levels, then uh, switched to England, uh, but has filed that one-time switch, and so now will represent the USA. Uh, will likely be moving back to Arsenal after a loan period uh, this season, uh, and maybe he stays there. Maybe he becomes a, a goal-scoring option for Arsenal, which would, I think, make many, many, many American supporters happy. And if not, maybe he gets a move and it's another player to keep an eye on. But Joe, this is a guy who you drafted when we did our USMNT draft, I think with your second pick, yep. a very yep. early pick early for on. you. Yes. 
And you, I, I will say as well, occasionally get hyped about people or have a lot of enthusiasm for players. But even there, it tends to be tempered. And not to say that like you're not a downer. You get hyped, you get excited, you get enthusiastic. But I think you're always aware that Joe Scali is great and he's playing for Gladbach, but he's not as good at this and he ha- and he needs to work on this. And he's not at that level yet where we can consistently rely on him. I think you bring that level of measured analysis. Balogun, I think, is the most... Like, not irrationally, but rationally, irrationally hyped I've yeah. heard you for a USMNT eligible player. Yeah, I, I think that's true, right? I, I don't remember getting this excited about a player. Giorena is probably the other yeah. player that I'm just, like, constantly backing because it's so clear how good he is and mm-hmm. how impactful he could be. He just can't stay healthy. Balogun, uh, uh, the reason I'm so excited about Balogun, there's a lot of them, but the biggest reason is we've been crying out for a number nine for so long. Like, so long. It's been... Mm-hmm the dominant discourse positionally for the U.S. for a long, long time, certainly all throughout this past World Cup qualifying cycle. Is it going to be Josh Sargent? Okay, maybe, maybe not. Is it going to be Ricardo Pepe? Oh my goodness, Ricardo Pepe scored like four goals in a few games and now he's the savior and now he's playing for a relegation team in the Netherlands and we're sort of wondering, is he going to go to the U-20 World Cup? And he didn't end up going to the U-20 World Cup. But it's like, who is going to be this person? And all of a sudden, this person falls out of the sky. Like, this is a guy that I was very confident was going to play for England maybe five months ago. Like, somebody asked me in a, in a group chat I'm in, somebody asked me, what's the percent chance that Balogun plays for the U.S.? And this was even, like, in March at this point. When when the, the rumors were starting to float around that Balogun was in Orlando, the fans so on social media, like, tracked him down and figured out where this guy was at a bar yep. in Orlando. U.S. Soccer even mentioned that in their press release that came out just before we started to record. They have a quote from Balogun. Uh, that said, I think that's when I really saw the full force of U.S. fans. I was there and I just posted a photo with my friends thinking it was just a holiday picture. Before I knew it, I just saw loads of comments and people I knew and people knew I was in America. And I just really felt the love from there. There's more in that quote, but it's so good, right? Like fans got on board and all of a sudden, you know, it feels maybe more possible. But back in March, I'm still thinking there's like a 30 percent chance like this guy played a handful of games, if not if not less than that for the U.S. at youth level. He is really uh, an England player almost all throughout his youth career has been in touch with their federation seemingly much more than the U.S. And now he fell into the U.S.'s lap. Like credit to whoever was was engaging him in conversation, whoever was was really sort of pitching him. And and I hope that Balogun feels like this is something that's right for him. I assume it does and something that's good for his career. I just didn't expect this to happen. And so the fact that he fills a massive position of need, a position where the next best option is like a, a bottom tier Premier League player or a top tier championship player in Josh Sargent, you know, this is a massive jump up in talent. Balogun's a really good player. He's got 19 goals in Ligue 1 this year. He's one of the top scorers in all of Europe's major leagues. Ligue 1 is probably the, the worst of the big five, maybe not even outside the big five at this point. So he still has something to prove, but at 21 and another really young, talented player and, and at a position where the U.S. desperately needed a real goal scorer, they've got one now, or at least it, it really, really looks that way. Yeah, it does. Uh, a couple things there, Joe. Going back to the sort of Sherlock Holmes sleuthing that yeah. some uh, USMNT fans did, for people who missed that story or have forgotten it, he basically posts, what, a photo of him sitting in like uh, with the door open like yep. in the passenger seat of an SUV. And as I recall, there's basically half a sign for a place visible somewhat in the background of, of the picture, and people were able to figure out the name of that restaurant then looked it up and figured out and like did Google Street View to figure out where he was and that it was in Orlando when the U.S. was there and did that type of dot connecting. It was some truly incredible sleuthing. 
And it, and that comes from uh, my perspective at the time being similar to yours, which is I did not think he was necessarily definitely going to represent the United States. And the thing that I remember saying is I didn't expect him to make a decision anytime soon because the U.S. didn't have the GM, didn't have the coach. You know, there's no way a player can be fully sure of what the program is going to be or how it's going to look or what the identity will be. And there was no pressure on him to make that choice because we knew he wasn't going to get significant minutes for England right away. So he didn't need to choose them, but it wasn't clear how impactful the minutes he would get for the U.S. would be. And so that he has made that choice, I think, speaks volumes about how he was recruited, but maybe also that feeling of appreciation that people were that excited for him. It's akin to when a big transfer is flying from Munich to Barcelona or Barcelona to London, and they're tracking the private flights to see where he's landing and who it might be. I think that there's a little bit of VIP treatment there. I continue to have that concern that he is coming in with this idea of, I'm the number nine now, I'm the starter, it's mine. And and I don't think that's how the U.S. has ever worked. I think he's still got to earn it. But your point about his talent remains. Watching him, he obviously can score goals in different ways. It's not all sort of tap-ins where he makes smart runs. It's not all shots from distance that are screamers. It's it's a combination thereof, but it's also taking people on. It's dribbling out of pressure. It's evading initial pressing pressure. Uh, it's finding good passes. It's making smart runs. He seems like a very complete option for that number nine spot and I think could be used in a number of different ways. So again, in that way, I think he does answer a problem that to your point we've had for a couple of years, I would say it goes back to even like the failure to qualify for 2018 and some conversation about what do we do if Josie Altador can't play or if Josie Altador isn't fit or if he's not in the form we need him to be. And even in the 2014 World Cup where we take Josie Altador, he has a hamstring issue right away and it's Clint Dempsey playing as a as a number nine because Aaron Johansson maybe isn't at the level we need to be a starter at a World Cup and it's been a long time. Offensive to Aaron a, Johansson, but, you know, <laughs> fair enough. All right. <laughs> I think he was the only player to not play in that World Cup, or maybe that was mixed discrude. I forget. Uh, but either way, it's been a long time since we had a very, very, like, clear-cut hype number nine. I wouldn't say he is the out-and-out, like, locked-in starter, but it does feel like suddenly there is that separation in the position, and now yeah. Ricardo Pepe, Jesus Ferreira, Josh Sargent, whomever it may be, I think there is a player that they have to look up to as being someone you have to do better than if you want to start in that spot. It feels like Balogun, when we have a, a, an official coach and maybe even before it for the Nations League, is is likely to be called in and is likely to be in or around that starting eleven. Yeah, I'm way more comfortable, and I have been throughout this whole process mm-hmm. of anointing him to the starting number nine role. And and yeah, you got to come into camp and do the basic professional things, right? You you got to show why you're here and show why you've been recruited in this way and show why you have hordes of USMNT fans commenting Eagles and American flags in your, in your Instagram <laughs> posts, right? Like you have to show why, but we, yeah. we don't really have a reason to think that Balogun won't show that. And given his production level compared to any other number nine in, in the level where he's playing compared to any other number nine in the U S pool, you know, I think that says a lot about his ability. Taylor, my, my question for you, cause I, I'm trying to think through other number nines. You mentioned Josie Altador, Aaron Johansson, Clint Dempsey and Landon Donovan, in my mind, I'm not thinking of as number nines, much more like second striker, pseudo wide player kind of guys. Like, ha- has the U.S. ever had a number nine? I'm pretty sure the answer to this question is no. That has done what Balogun has done this year. 19 goals in a major European league, regular starter, one of the best performances, regardless of age, performers, regardless of age in Europe. Brian McBride never put up double-digit goals in the Premier League. Like, Thank you for preempting the thing uh, that yep, I was typing yep. in. I was doing my research, but I'm like, am I? Mi- I don't think I'm missing anyone. Like, who else... 
in terms of the, the greatest U.S. number nines of all time, mm-hmm. you hear about Josie Altidore, you hear about Brian, Brian McBride. I don't, I don't understand who else Balogun is competing with. Like, this is providing, I think, the U.S. a level of security up top that they just haven't had in such a long time, or much more likely that they just have never had. And you think about... Think of the other young, talented players in this team, right? It's a, it's a young core. I have core. a nomination, by the way. Okay, I, I want to hear your nomination before I continue. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I think on a runners-up honorable mention to Brian McBride. I think you okay. ruled him out effectively, but I would say uh, the season with Fulham's Great Escape where he is instrumental in that happening, he doesn't score as many goals, but the goals he scores are absolutely critical, and he becomes that sort of key player for them, and then obviously for what he did with the U.S. specifically in 2002. But it still doesn't cross that threshold. The only player that I really remember having a period of time when they were sort of just having massive success, scoring a ton of goals, felt like an automatic lock for the U.S. was Josie Altidore in his two seasons with AZ. He scores 15 goals in his first season, yep. 23 in his second. And even there, there is the like the Dutch idea of you can score a ton of goals in the yeah. Eredivisie, but then if you it's go to a lower to a level league, league right? Exactly. Just, just I mean, compared to some of the others, for sure. Yeah, it is. It's just, it, it is, for the longest time, I think it's changed a little bit, but for the longest time, if you were a Premier League club signing a, a number nine, a goal-scoring striker from the Netherlands, there was, it really was a coin flip of maybe, like, Alphonse Areola was the one, I think, who was like the top scorer in the Netherlands by some distance, and then he moves to Middlesbrough or Sunderland, I forget, and just does nothing. And some of that is service. Some of that is a lack of uh, quality around that player. But it is always a bit of a crapshoot coming out of the Netherlands because defenses just aren't as as strong. And so for Balogun to do it in France, I think with the caveat about the quality yep. of some French clubs, but overall, it is a better league uh, with better like more complete squads, I think, largely speaking, aside from like the top couple in the Netherlands. So I think your point is well taken that if I want to say maybe somebody's come close, it's Josie Altador, and that is literally a decade ago. So it has been quite some time since we had anybody who was in the goal-scoring form of Balogun and brought that level of enthusiasm. And even there, he just has so many other aspects of his game that I think can be utilized uh, by the U.S., whomever their manager may be. Yeah, and, and sticking with goal scoring, and then I do want to talk about those other a- a- aspects of his game. In terms of goal scorers, you think about the young core, right, of this U.S. team who are, are getting older and older. Like, McKenney, I think, is 24 at this point. It, it's starting to feel weirder that these players are kind of in their prime and they're not young up-and-comers anymore. But you think about this young young group. Tyler Adams, anchoring the midfield, does an incredibly important job. Is not a goal scorer. It's not an attacking threat in any way. Yunus Musa incredibly important dual national that the U.S. secured under Greg Berhalter, is, I think, a phenomenal young central midfielder, not particularly effective in the final third. That is something that is not in Eunice Musa's game right now. Weston McKinney, as a number eight, is a good box arriver. He can get you a couple of goals off set pieces or in big moments throughout a calendar year of games for the men's national team. He is an option that, that can bring a little attacking thrust. You think about the top four wingers as it stands now for the U.S. out, out, out wide, Christian Pulisic, Giorena, Tim Weah, Brendan Aronson, none of those players have ever scored 10-plus goals in a single league season. They're not goal scorers. Either they're, they're not available, they're not fit, or they're just not goal dangerous relative to the other players in their leagues or even at times the other players in their teams. Allegan is goal dangerous. He's a guy who moves very, very well in the boxes, given interviews talking about how he'll watch tape, looking for space. He wants to make those smart runs. He's a guy who's going to get you goals. Like He's a guy that's shown it at a level that no U.S. striker has shown before at least consistently and in terms of volume. 
He's a guy that will put the ball in the back of the net. Now, we still need to see more of Balogun, right? I do want to provide the caveat, and, and we kind of got there, Taylor, with what we are talking about before with Josie versus McBride versus you know Balogun. He, he's not playing in the best league in the world. He's not playing for a team that is like you know a really elite team in Europe. He's not doing it in the Champions League. There's still much more for Balogun to prove. He is not the greatest number nine on the planet. He's probably not a, a top 10 number nine, but he is maybe not that far outside that group, maybe top 20. Like he is, he's a very good number nine with room to grow, with room to improve. But he, he's not just a goal scorer, right? You mentioned a lot of these things already. He's pretty comfortable dropping back into midfield. He's not a false nine. He's not going to do what Jesus Ferreira does. But almost if you squint and like pretend that it's like the dollar store version, you can see some Kareem Benzema and how he plays. He'll drop in. He can handle a player on his back. He can turn. He's shifty. He's smart on the ball. And he does a lot of those things that Benzema does at a much, 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 much higher level. But Balogun can contribute deeper down the field a bit. Now, there's still, I think, room for him to improve. Just to be clear, you're saying Benz- Benzema does them at a much higher level, correct? Yes, Benzema. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Balogun is the, the dollar store <laughs> version, for sure. I mean, Balogun can do some of that stuff. There's room for him to improve in that way. There's room for him to improve pretty much every part of his game. But I think he's a willing runner. He's willing to press. He's willing to step. Like, he is, in terms of a profile, while he's not maxed out at all of these different attributes, he is relatively complete in his game. He can do... Almost anything you would ask of a number nine, very well-rounded, and has shown that he has some high-level skills this season. We don't know what his next year will look like at club level, and that's going to continue to be important for him as Mm -hmm. such a young player. Again, only 21 years old. There's lots of room for him to grow, and his next club will be important in that process, and it's really up in the air right now because of the loan situation over in France. You know, Is he going to play for Arsenal? I don't think that would be a good move for him. You know, If we're talking about other elite number nines in the world, and there aren't a ton, Gabriel Jesus, in my mind, is one of those players. I think if you're Balogun, you're you're better off not going to sit behind Jesus. But this guy's good, Taylor. He fills a position of need. He's really good at a lot of stuff. I I think this is huge for the U.S. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And to the feeling a lot of holes, does a lot of things. It, it's the goal scoring as well, but it's getting shots off. I think he's top of the team uh, of Reem in terms of shots per 90, but also in terms of big chances created, he's near the top of the, uh, of them for uh, uh, for that total number on the season. Uh, same for successful dribbles, uh, top of the team for penalties one. So you see it's he's a player who's quick, who's technical, who's good with the ball at his feet, who can score goals, but can draw fouls. He does a lot. And I think the other thing that is minor and really not even in that important, but it is just a, I think a noteworthy thing if you're trying to understand if you're new or haven't been following this saga, Balogun, uh, according to Transfermarkt, is valued around 25 million euros, last updated in late March, so maybe that will change. Um, some of that, I think, is the connection to Arsenal. Some of that is the, the season he has had. But Joe, uh, if you look at any of the next closest strikers for the U.S., uh, Josh Sargent is closest in terms of valuation at 12 million euros. Uh, Ricardo Pepe at 9 million, Brandon Vasquez at 7 million. All of them exciting prospects for sure, but there is just that little, that not even little, that massive difference in valuation I think shows you it's not just us who's getting hyped about him. There is legitimate statistical reason to back up why he is a player who could get minutes for Arsenal but could get a permanent move, and if he does get a permanent move, it won't be for cheap or cheap according to me. I guess he won't be 100 million pounds, but maybe he's 20, (laughs) maybe he's 30, something like that. So... It's a player that we would expect to be in demand and we would expect to be continuing to have success and developing and playing even better next season, we would hope at least. So I think rounding out this segment, I'll just say uh, very, very happy news that I did not expect to get this soon, Joe. 
Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I am, except for really the transfer market values, I am loath to ever cite those as as meaningful <laughs> um, because I think that's just folks like making up numbers because they, they want to. But I, I do think there are numbers out there that you can point to Balogun being a really good player. And, and I'll, I'll go to the sort of the, the more underlying on-field stuff. Like he's in the 93rd percentile for non-penalty XG, which means, oh, wait, let me back up. Sorry, oh boy, 93rd oh percentile for non-penalty XG in the top five leagues, Champions League uh, and, and Europa League this season. Yeah, more, over the, more over the last calendar year. should do it. That yeah, yeah. should make it more clear. Like he is, he's elite at getting it. I'm just going to breeze right past that. He's he's elite <laughs> at getting into goal scoring spots. Like that's that's why whoever is making up the transfer market values is like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, we'll give this guy a boost. And, and he will get another one because of the narrative side. And, and now that he's committed and people are talking about him, they're going to, I would wager a decent amount of actual big boy money that they will raise it like to 40 million just because that feels like a logical boost. But like you can go and look at his stats, you can watch the tape, and this guy is is the real deal. Um, so again, like absolutely massive stuff and really pleasantly surprised and excited about the US in a way that I haven't been since maybe before the Netherlands game. I don't know. It's it's kind of fun yeah. to think about this stuff. You you need these moments, you need these wins along the way to kind of build that enthusiasm back up, especially at a time when there's a lot of question marks around the program. I think he is a a solidly positive uh, number to have on the ledger, uh, even if Joe uh, disputes the transfer market valuation. But right now, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to talk about uh, a little bit of MLS and to answer some questions back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back, Florin Balogun. If you are listening, Joe Lowry loves you uh, and is very excited to try to hug you. I would say have security around at your first U.S. game just in case uh, you don't want Joe uh, coming anywhere near you, but you should because Joe's wonderful. Joe... We should talk a little bit about MLS. Uh, This week we saw, what, match day 12 for most clubs. Some teams only still on 11 games played. We talked early on about how it takes about eight weeks or so to get an idea of who the teams are, what they need, who is sort of a more complete team, who has figured out their identity, all those things. Is it fair to say that we are now moving into the point of the season when we find out who is the deepest team? Because we're starting to get fixtures piling up, more games in the midweek. It seems like we're moving towards, okay, now we know which teams also have the depth needed to compete in a 34-game season plus playoffs. Yeah, I mean, this this part of the season is brutal. It's it's brutal for teams especially because there's so much going on. Like over, I believe, counting this week's midweek games, there's games tomorrow, as we're recording on Tuesday, Three of the next seven weeks have games on Wednesdays. So there are a lot of games coming up. Players are racking up yellow card suspensions. They're racking up red card suspensions. The U-20 World Cup has taken more than a dozen MLS players. Like, there's a lot of of things that are testing how deep these teams are. I think we, we have a pretty good idea of which teams are good in MLS right now, of which teams are 
mediocre in MLS right now. I'm not really sure which teams are like super bad. I think there's just a lot of mediocre at the bottom of the table and even the middle of the table. But I mean, we're going to start seeing which teams can actually handle all this stuff, right? There's games coming at them thick and fast. There's player absences for things like the U20 World Cup. There's going to be, you know, national team stuff that comes up as we head into the summer. Like there's a, a lot of things that are pulling on MLS right now and squads just don't have the resources, many of them to, to be particularly deep. And even the ones that, that have not resources, but even the ones that do it well are still going to be tested over the next, you know, really from now to the end of the summer, basically. Joe, I think this question will make sense. Always a good preamble. Um, you say we're not sure who is just like overtly outright bad at this point. Uh, bottom of the East would be the New York Red Bulls and then Toronto. Bottom of the West would be the LA Galaxy and Sporting Kansas City. If there were other teams in those spots who had performed similarly, I won't hmm. name names to not incur incur the wrath of their fan bases, but if there were other franchises in there, would you be more comfortable saying they are bad or or regardless of sort of the name, the identity, do you feel like given the we don't have any team that has like one point at this point in the season. So sure. do you feel like regardless of who the team is, it's tough to say anybody is bad or is largely some of that sentiment because it's for historically good teams? I love that question, Taylor. I've, I've not considered that at all through this point in the year. And that's that's a really, really good one. I think it had, I think it does have something to do with the teams that are here, right? Because a lot of these teams are historically valued or, yep. or mostly competitive and the reason is because they have good players, right? Because they're, they're usually like pretty talented do it. <laughs> in these teams right now. There's undeniable talent on these teams like Toronto have, if they want to actually show up and play the two best players in MLS and, and Bernadeschi has done a decent job of that this year. And Insigne has been an, a genuine embarrassment for Toronto. Like he is, he's been a, a train wreck and is the, the latest and greatest example of why going out and trying to do these marketing stunts is is kind of a waste of time. And I didn't think Insignia was just a marketing stunt at the time, by the way. I thought he was it was certainly good enough to contribute and play a meaningful role. And he just hasn't been straight up. He he doesn't look like he's trying. He doesn't look like he cares about what's going on. Whatever Bob Bradley says, like it doesn't it doesn't look that way. So Toronto have the talent though. And so we we know that they can do something if their players decide to turn it on. The Red Bulls have less top end talent, but the system is there. And for New York right now, the underlying numbers just like them so much. Like the underlying numbers, expect a goal differential, that kind of stuff, say that they're a top five team in the league. And I don't know that that's necessarily all the way true. It's you know it's still a bit early in the season to be reading everything out of those kinds of numbers, but they've got to be better than they showed, right? Like they were struggling and having crazy results go the opposite way since Troy Lassane's come in. And I don't think it's because Troy Lassane is this genius manager, even though I do think he's a, a young, promising coach. Like they beat NYCFC in the Derby. And it's like that game, there was nothing separating those teams in that game. And finally, the result went their way. They're going to have more results go their way over the next few weeks. In the West, SKC winless through 10 games. Like horrific start to the year that prompted some very fair questions about this organization and the people making decisions, whether they should still be there or not. All fair. Now that we see their three DPs get on the field against Seattle and all of a sudden things start to look a lot better. Like we, we see them get over some of the injury bug. And now they've won two straight MLS games. So you got them and, and then the Galaxy. And I, I'm probably the least optimistic about the Galaxy in Toronto of these four. The Galaxy have quality, though. Like, they have really good players on talent. They're better than 
more than half of the Western Conference, like player for player. I know there's big issues there, and I know Goss would be making fun of me if he was here and not calling 87 different youth soccer games. Like, yeah, I, but I know not, that that so would be true. He's not here. Don't worry about him. But like pound for pound, objectively, there's more talent there than FC Dallas, Goss. That's just the truth. Like Everybody knows that. I, I think they're, these teams are at the bottom because they, I mean, in a lot of ways, they played very, very poorly. That's not a hot take. But I back them to climb up the table much more than I would back, like, in Austin or an RSL or a Colorado or a Minnesota, just looking at the next team sort of above those two at the bottom of the West, I think those teams are going to have a much harder time of sustaining success or even sustaining their level than probably most of those bottom teams that that are, are kind of cellar dwellers right now. So of those four we're talking about at the bottom, uh, it sounds like Toronto is the one that you have the most concern about. I'm worried about Toronto. Like they, they sacrificed in so many ways with, with their salary cap and, and other roster mechanisms. Like they sacrificed what they can do with building their roster to go out and get the big boys, right? They sacrificed what they can do to go out and sign those players. They also were hamstrung because the previous roster builds had just been like horrific, right? You think about Carlos Sacedo coming in and he was genuinely atrocious in the middle of the back line. Like maybe the worst center back I've ever seen in MLS. And the bar is pretty low for, for pad defenders around the world. So he was really I remember rough. Felipe telling me like that guy does not get called up from Mexico because he yeah. cannot run anymore. He has yes. zero speed and will just foul people because he cannot run. This is a very risky signing. And I think he gets a red card or gets like a very obvious yellow card so almost bad. immediately for Toronto because of that. Yeah, not, yeah. not a I great had, look. I had higher hopes for that move, and I was totally wrong. Felipe was 100% right. That was a train wreck. But, like, there have been too many of those kinds of signings. So between using high-value roster mechanisms on Insigne and Bernadeschi and those kinds of players and just whiffing on, on some other moves that would build depth, they don't have depth, right? And so now we're seeing Michael Bradley, who's finally maybe Father Time has caught up with him. He's been injured and hasn't played the last several games. Like, who, who's going to be the guy that fills that spot? Is it going to be uh, Coelho who's come in and, and it's like, who is this guy? First of all, like he's not a player with a lot of MLS pedigree, but it's smooth enough on the ball. But now he's hurt and, and he was already like not the best depth option to begin with. And we're seeing Victor Vasquez, who is really the only high profile and, and consistently proven attacking substitute option that Bob Bradley has. He's old and now injured and is going to be out for a, a sustainable, a, 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 a like a real period of time. They just don't have the depth. And so we're, we're seeing Mark Anthony K play at center back and Richie Larea tuck inside and play center back. And it's, it's just not good. So they don't have the stars performing at the level they need. And because of the stars' presence and previous mistakes, they don't have the depth. And it's just one big, massive problem. The, the positive for Toronto is they can flip a switch, it seems to me, and really be competitive and go out and win five games in a row. And, and because it's MLS, they can be ninth in the Eastern Conference. And it's like, oh, they made the playoffs. And, and everybody sort of gives them half a pass. But we shouldn't. So I guess, yeah, I do have some, some real concerns about Toronto. One more question about Toronto. I did not see us going in this direction. But that's also because I don't think I've paid enough attention to them. So when you say Insigne now looks like a, like a, like a bad signing, it's not working. Yeah. Or I guess I'm putting words in your mouth there. No, I, I would say that, that. That's cool. There is, yeah. There's a level of surprise for me, I think, because I'm out of the loop on him and haven't watched Toronto. But because I thought he would be a slam dunk, perfect signing for them. What does he look like in the games that you've seen that makes you think sure. he doesn't care or just isn't interested? Is it throwing the hands up? Is it not making runs? Is it, I don't know, flicking off the camera? What, what is it, Joe, that tells you he's maybe not, his heart is not in this right now? I like all those options. It's A lot of it is the body language stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, he he doesn't receive the ball and it's like his shoulders are slumped and he's like yeah. throwing his arms out. It's, it's a lot of that stuff. But also it seems like that's bleeding into his actual play. 
Like when the ball is at his feet or when he's trying to get on the ball, it doesn't feel like he's intentional or purposeful with his movements. When he gets on the ball, it feels like it's it's four extra touches. Where if he was at Napoli in his prime, well, there's other elite players around him, like in most positions. He knows he can't get away with that, even though he was the best player at Napoli for a long time and is a legend at that club. Even he knew that the gap between him and the other players in that club wasn't large enough for him to get away with that kind of thing. There would be consequences. In Toronto, we, we haven't seen there be consequences. Is Bob Bradley going to come up and, and bench him? Right, it, That's really the only option that Toronto have unless Insignia has a change of heart and all of a sudden decides to try, which is possible. But at the moment, we're seeing way too much lackadaisical, frustrated body language from Insignia that bleeds into his play, and it, it just makes him... Like a negative impact player. Like it makes it, it makes Toronto's attacking play much slower. It makes life so much easier for opposing defenders. And if Insigne, the X factor for your team, isn't performing and you don't have the resources to really surround him with high level players at every other position and you don't have the depth to survive, even when you're, you're good but not great, an aging central midfield core gets hurt. It's like you don't, you don't have a lot left at that point. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of factors with Insigne, but the, the biggest one is it just doesn't look like he's trying. And it, it's apparent to him, it's apparent to the viewer, and I would imagine it's very, very apparent for his teammates. So Insigne doesn't look like he's trying. Uh, Colorado and Philadelphia both seem to be trying to get all of their players <laughs> sent off this past weekend. That is the other game I had a specific question for you uh, for from there we go that makes sense all the uh, prepositions in, all there of them. you go uh, in that game there is uh, quite the scrum uh, Brian Galvan eventually uh, sent off as was uh, Jesus Bueno for I think uh, some shoving uh, Andre Blake gets put into the advertising advertising uh, boards and then from there a lot of shoving some suplexing uh, and a couple red cards handed out. Joe, who are the uh, the best practitioners of the dark arts of soccer <laughs> in Major League Soccer right now, in your mind? Who are the ones who know how to kind of get away with some of the hazardry or are just up yeah. for things like this? We'll maybe get that red card if it means, uh, I don't know, getting into it if that's what they want to do. Yeah, Diego Chara is the one that I always come back to first. Chara Nazi Alonso, like dark arts in the crap out of Cascadia for a decade or however long it was. <laughs> Like, th- those are the two that everybody, especially Chara, that people just loathe to play against. And then their teams obviously love them, and their their fans love them a lot. Another one is a player who was not involved in this Philly-Colorado game, but is Jose Martinez for the Union. Is like, I think he's a little crazy. Like, in a, in a fun way for most of the time. Like, you know, he's coming into Jim Curtin's post-playoff win press conferences and like, hey, what's taking so long? Like, we gotta go celebrate. Like, he is... He doesn't really seem to have the biggest filter. Has a great story as well coming to the U.S. from Venezuela. Like, he's a cool guy, cool background, seems like a nice dude. But something about when soccer is involved, like a switch kind of flips in his brain. Yeah. And you've got him doing some wild stuff both on the field and, and in the locker room. So Martinez is the other one that, that pretty quickly comes to mind for me. Didn't he have something, I think, in CONCACAF Champions League, maybe last season or the season before? I feel like he got involved in, in, in a bit oh. of a scrap as well. There was a big Philly, uh, shoot, who was the Costa Rican team? Maybe it was Saprissa, Philly Saprissa, like brawl in Costa Rica a few years ago. I know Kai Wagner was involved in that. I would assume Jose Martinez was involved in that because I think he does live for those moments in a lot of ways. But I don't remember for sure. But that was an excellent CCL moment. (laughs) I'm I'm glad glad you enjoyed it. Uh, Since you took us to Diego Chara there briefly... Uh, why don't we move to some listener questions? Yeah. Uh, this one is specifically about the Timbers and specifically for Joe. It comes from Jesse Nelson or Nielsen. Joe was pretty much the only person to cast some doubt on Evander's signing for the Timbers, providing a bit of a reality check. Uh, this is a long one from Jesse, so I will kind of summarize. Basically, 
as the season got underway, Jesse started to feel like maybe Joe might have been onto something. Things did not seem to be working out that well. Um, now, Evander is on five goal contributions in his last three games, including a few remarkable goals and assists. With his body of work 12 games in, I would love to hear your assessment of where things stand with the Timbers club record signing, given his run of form over the last month or so. Joe, how say you? Yeah, so the place to start with Evander especially when we're trying to evaluate his body of work, is that it's still not very large. Like 12 games were, were more than a third now of the way through the regular season, which is great. And that is, that's somewhere we can actually make some, some conclusions, draw some conclusions. But Evander's missed four MLS games. He missed a, a decent stretch of the year with a hip injury. And so the beginning of his life in Portland was kind of set back because of that stuff. So we're still seeing him get up to speed. I will say a lot of the, the goals and assist stuff is promising. Like, he's he's impacted in the game, in the attack. He's doing some things. He's looking better than I think he did at the beginning of the year. And, and I would imagine part of that is just getting healthy. My big issue, though, with the Evander signing before the season and even into the season was, was the fact that he plays very, very similarly to another player that was already on the roster. Like, I, I wrote this year for Backfield that Evander would be a bust of a signing for Portland because he's not a true chance creator. Like, he, he's not really a number 10, which is kind of what he was billed at coming into Portland. That's what the Timbers were talking about him as. I think that's even how he sees himself. But you watch him play, and this guy's just not, like, a Sebastian Blanco for Portland. or He's not a, a Lucho Acosta for Cincinnati. He's not a Carles Hill. He's not going to fully dictate the game. He likes to play a little bit deeper. He likes to pick up the ball in those those deeper areas. He might rotate out to the fullback spot like we see number eights do all the time. And he likes to drive forward on the ball. He can he can play some nice passes forward as well. But he's much more of like the smooth ball progressing number eights. And the Timbers already had one of those. Like they had maybe the best in all of Major League Soccer and Eric Williamson, like a U.S. men's national team player, somebody who would be involved this summer if he was healthy. But the challenge is that Eric Williamson got hurt towards ACL, which sucks. He's done that way too much. I think this is the second time, which is two times too many. Like, it, it, you really feel for Eric Williams, and you feel for the Timbers, you feel for the fans. But now, really in this kind of twisted way that's opened the door for Evander to be the guy. Eric Williamson was was going to be fighting him in similar spots, is going to be fighting for touches. Now they don't have to worry about that. Like, Diego Chara doesn't want the ball. Whoever's playing opposite him in, in Portland have had a bunch of injuries in their midfield, so the options are, are more limited. But, like, whoever's playing opposite... Evander doesn't really want the ball that much either. He gets to be the guy that dictates, not in a number 10, through ball threading kind of way, but in his own ball progressing, clever, quick feet, good in tight spots, likes to crash the box kind of way. And I think it's going to work. Like, I think he'll do well. I don't know if he will justify the price tag, $10 million, according to reports, the biggest signing in Portland Timbers history. I don't know that he will produce in the way over a 34-game season, in the way that Timbers fans want, and in the way that he was sort of billed to be able to produce before the season starts. But I think he's a good player. I think he will make Portland better. I think he has made them better over the last five, six games you know, that he's actually been healthy. So jury's kind of still out. I don't yeah. think he will reach expectations, but I think he's in a much better position now than he was either at the beginning of the year because of injuries or even a little bit after that because Eric Williamson is, is no longer really in the picture. You'd take him over Insigne, though, I'm guessing? <laughs> today I would take a lot of players over. I'd take Corey <laughs> Barrett over Insigne today, Taylor. That's, that's, a, that's a solid MLS burn right there, Joe Lowry. <laughs> Sorry, um, Corey Baird, if you're listening. I hope you're I, not. But. And, and, and broadly speaking, how are you feeling about uh, the Timbers at this point? They've been through some things uh, yeah. this season and in the, uh, the time leading up to this season. Uh, what have you made of them uh, like thus far? They've been, they've been fine. In, in my opinion, they're one of the more unremarkable teams in MLS. Like... I, I like some of their players. I like Evander. He's fun to watch. I like Diego Chara. He seemingly can defy father time in a way that other players just can't. 
Uh, I like goalkeeper Ivacic, and I think they have some talent in the attack. I just, I don't think they have the depth at center back. I don't think they have the midfield depth anymore after injuries. And I'm, I'm not totally sure what the number nine position looks like for them in an ideal sense. So between injuries and, and just some players that I, I they've signed that I just don't think are great and are above average MLS options, I'm not incredibly high on this team. But the Timbers have some juice, man. Every, every time you get towards the end of the season, like they're popping up in conversations that it feels like they shouldn't pop up in. And they're playing some at least quality soccer, if not remarkable soccer. So I'm certainly not going to rule anything out for them this year, but I don't think they're really near the cream of the crop in the West. All right, that's one question answered. I successfully added nothing, which is my job in these types of shows where Joe has all the knowledge and I am here to facilitate conversation. I'm going to continue to do that, maybe add a few thoughts of my own uh, in part three. First, one more break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willingly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back. We are continuing to answer some MLS-centric listener questions, and by we, I mean Joe. Joe, another one from Andrew McPherson. Uh, this was asked a couple of weeks ago, still relevant, I think, and something we've already semi-addressed earlier. 
Sporting Kansas City has looked lifeless and out of ideas two years in a row now. Yes, I realize the end of last season was exciting, but overall not good, says Andrew. It's bad, says Andrew. What has gone wrong? What could go right for SKC going forward? What needs to change? Should Vermees be sacked? That should was in all caps, Joe, just so you know the the emphasis on the question. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and preempt this by saying what needs to change is that they need uh, all three of their designated players to be back on the pitch and playing well. And when that happens, they look like a better team. It hurts my prediction a little bit uh, that I I thought they would get the fewest goal contributions of from their designated players of any team. Yeah, that's right. I think that was slightly amended uh, due to some helpful suggestions from people to include of the teams that have three DP signings, right. because if you right. only have the one, probably fewer goal contributions. I, that was largely informed by thinking that um, they basically wouldn't be able to get all three of them back on the pitch for a good long while. It was a while, but now they've got them all back. I thought it would take longer, and it does seem like that is having a pretty sizable impact right away. Yeah, I think it is. And look, there are still issues with Sporting Kansas City. It's important to know that they have had some better performances, and Taylor, you just got to that. I, I mentioned it earlier as well. Two wins in their last two MLS games at Seattle against Minnesota at home. Like, there's there's some reasons to be positive now that players are starting to return. But there are still real issues with this club, right? It's it's difficult to go 10 games without a win and not have some larger underlying current that's swaying, in, swaying you in that direction. I think Sporting Kansas City will make the playoffs. Really low bar, not a measure of success, et cetera, et cetera. Always with those caveats. But I, I think they're a lot better than what they've shown so far this year. And we're going to start to see them bounce back as players get healthy. When you talk about the issues with this club, though... It's about personnel. Like, they have a style. They have a lot of players who can execute that style, and that's good. But they've dealt with injuries, which is a factor of personnel in, in some of the players they brought in being old. So to start this year, they were without Alan Polito. He's on the older side. They were without Gatti Kinda, who I think still has a lot left to give, but hasn't hasn't been available for a while now and is now getting back into the team. Uh, Radoja, who's a young – not a young. I don't know why I said young. He's a deep-lying central midfielder that they brought in over the summer – over the offseason, he's a guy that I think has a lot of talent, but has not proven he can stay on the field. They've had injuries in the center back positions. They've had injuries really all across the back line at both fullback spots as well. They didn't have the depth to sustain those injuries, and that's when it ties back into the roster building side of, of personnel. It's not just injury side. It's also player identification and how they've gone about trying to build their squad. Like So many of the signings, Taylor, that they made have been rough, like just haven't worked. The jury's still out on Rosero, who's the center back they signed partway through this current season. But Volader, I've not seen it there. Is Matt Marine? I, I never really saw it. He's no longer on the squad. Roberto Puncic, I never really saw it. He's not on the squad. If these are names that you either don't know or have forgotten, there's probably a reason for that. Like, you can kind of keep going back all the way to Icopara and Matt Beasler since this team has had a, a real center back pairing. And an MLS, and, and anywhere around the world, right? It's not just an MLS thing. Having good defenders have in the middle of your back line to, to build out your spine is important. Like It's not just the center back spot, though. They haven't really found somebody who can reliably rotate in on the wing. Johnny Russell's 33. Like He's a designated player who can still do some good stuff, but it, you know, wingers generally hit their prime at like 26, and, and that's sort of when things start to go downhill. And MLS, your window expands a bit, I think, because defenders aren't as good, but... Like this, this guy's not going to be able to bring what he's brought the last, you know, X number of years he's been in supporting Kansas City. They've also been really slow to phase Graham Zuzzi out. And Taylor, you saw the issues with that in person oh in, boy, in Kansas I. City oh when boy. Jordan Morris and, and Leo Chu just toasted him over and over and over again on that left side, the right side for SKC. Like they finally are phasing him out. But 
it's been an issue. So a lot of the personnel spots hurt this team. I like the tactical side. Like they've hit on some players. I like Kinda. I like Tommy. I like Agata. I like Polito. There's talent in this team, but they've really struggled in certain areas. And it feels like in terms of what needs to change in a more structured kind of way and, and should Vermees be sacked, it feels like Peter Vermees, the manager, is a, is a good influence on the club. Peter Vermees, head of soccer operations and general czar of Sporting Kansas City, is is not so useful at this point. And I, I don't imagine you get one without the other at this point in his career and after he's been in Sporting Kansas City for so long. So that, that does present some larger issues for this team going forward. Yeah, Joe, uh, a quick little addition for me. Uh, as you said, I was at that game when uh, Seattle crushed Sporting KC, and they started uh, Kansas City with Graham Zussi at right back and Ben Sweat at left back. It was Graham Zussi's 400th, 400th appearance for the club, and it was okay for the first 10 or 15 minutes, and then you could really see that if you need him to be any sort of attacking threat but still do the defensive work, you're going to be in some trouble. Uh, and Ben Sweat was in a lot of trouble in that game, got toasted a few times, I think ends up getting a second yellow red card in that game, and is no longer with the club, was waived, and is now playing for New England. So maybe part of the reason why they've been slow to phase out Graham Zussi is because they were busy trying to phase out Ben Sweat. Uh, but when you have your two fullbacks being pretty clear problem areas, you move one on, the other one is still there, starts in the U.S. Open Cup loss. Joe, I appreciate that you said they've won their last two MLS games because they did manage to to get knocked out by Houston in the U.S. Open Cup. I think there are still plenty of concerns about that roster build and the quality and depth of the overall roster. So I think brighter, sort of, for Sporting KC, I will say that there was the reaction to the booing of Peter Vermees, and Vermees, it's your fault. I don't even think there was booing. I think they were basically just saying, Vermees, this is your fault, which is an accurate statement. And even there, that was met with a little bit of, there's the one dude who's very like, we can't be doing this. Uh, that was a whole thing. Uh, he was very angry that they were uh, angry with Peter Vermees. But I saw Vermees then address uh, the, the fan group sort of after a game from like the stairs that lead into the, sta- into the stadium. He was talking to the kind of assembled beer hall. And all of the comments I saw were, maybe not all, maybe 90% of the comments were like, this guy isn't it anymore. He's not really taking responsibility. He's only taking credit for the wins. And I think it does seem like some of that enthusiasm for Peter Vermees has turned. I think he's more than capable of getting it back. But I think you're right that there are problem areas with that team that are directly connected to him and the work he's done so far. So I think criticism is fair. And now we see if he can pull them out or maybe if they do need to move on. But I don't think they should right now would be my my answer to that part of the question. Uh, Joe, are you inclined to say they should move on or are you okay with things staying as they are for now? I, I would say leave it as they are right now. Mm-hmm. But man, those last two games are are seeming very, very important. Like yeah. if, if Sporting Kansas City had continued yep. to nosedive, I think this is probably a different conversation. They pulled up at just the right moment. I think that bot for me is a, a bit more time. I agree. Two more questions, Joe. This one from Nick Toole. After roughly one third of the MLS season, uh, what would your report card grades be for MLS season pass, including the content, the games themselves, the new schedule, etc.? What do y'all like? What would y'all change for next season and why? Joe, kick us off. All right, so my overall grade on this MLS season pass report card for folks, if, if you're not an MLS person or, or don't really know what's going on here, MLS signed a, a partnership with Apple for like a bajillion years over the yep. offseason, which now means all MLS games, with the exception of some that stream over the air, are on Apple TV. So you have to go and, and you don't have to have an Apple TV subscription, but you have to have an MLS season pass subscription within Apple TV. So that's where all the games are now. And that's been sort of a big storyline for 
Major League Soccer this year, my, my report card grade for all of the content bunched together is a B. I think it's, it's a definite improvement over where things have been before. There's a lot of stuff that I like. There's some stuff that I, I don't like that feels pretty fixable. And then there's some stuff that I'm, I'm just not sure on because I only have so many eyes and, and so many hours in the day. But the stuff I like, Taylor, and I, I really do want to hear your perspective on this one as well. I think the production value has been really good. Like compared to where things have been, especially, and, and you see sort of what Fox has pulled their coverage back to with like a shower curtain and a sticker, a giant Fox sticker on the background yep. for, for John Strong and Stu Holden, which is unfortunate and, and not their call. But like the production value for this Apple stuff is good. You know, it's the camera quality is fantastic. It's way better than it's ever been for Major League Soccer before. Having the the broadcasters in the stadiums and making a commitment, at least in year one, we'll see if that changes at some point down the road. But like having those folks in the stadiums, I think does make a difference. Although I've got more on that in a second. I love some of the broadcast teams that they put together. Like special shout out to Tyler Terrence, who came to see us in New York, Taylor for our Bleach Report show, and Devin Kerr, who have done USL broadcasts together for a long time, and, and this is their first year together doing MLS games. They've been absolutely fantastic. Like some of the pairings are really, really good. They're probably been my favorite this year. I love some of the broadcast teams, and I like MLS Wrap Up, which has had Julian Sakovitz and Andrew Wiebe on for, I think, most of this year. It's the biggest action from every game of the weekend in this giant, long highlight package. It's 20 minutes, you know, provide bits of analysis and little hits from the folks in the studio. I think that's been really good, and it's been something that's been missing. Taylor, what, do you, what have you liked? What have you not liked? Because I haven't done my not-so-goods yet, but I, I really want to hear from you on this one. Uh, I, I like the production, as you've talked about. I think having having the commentators there and just more capable of conveying than what is actually happening as opposed to like, right. oh, we got to take another look at that. And like basically they're waiting for the replay on the monitor. I think that does make a difference and it lets you feel like you're sort of experiencing the atmosphere that much more. Uh, I, I like the, the quality of it is is consistent. You don't have different cameras that are giving you different quality uh, images. I think that was sometimes the case with Fox that you wouldn't always get the most high definition of, of broadcasting. So I like the standardization there. And I do like that every match is available on replay as well as extended highlights. Um, and then the analysis that goes with it seems like they've done a good job of correcting that it used to be really difficult to find those match replays. It, I think they're moving towards making that, a, a simpler process yeah, and they are sort well. of more identifiable. Um, and I will add that a lot of my hesitation is because I'm not sure if it's an Apple thing or me just being sort of unfamiliar or like less adept at utilizing the app itself. But a, a small thing, every time I go to try to find it, you have to go to Apple TV, you have to go to sports. Maybe there's a shortcut around this, like I said, but then it's it's a it's a minor thing, but it just it, it annoys me enough that I'm mentioning it. Is that to to do it? Usually, I have to click on the 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 icon, the tile that says like ex- explore Apple or explore MLS season pass or learn more mm-hmm. about season pass. And it always makes me think that it doesn't know I have one. And twice right. now, I've had to be like, wait, did it log me out? Because it won't let me watch certain things, or it makes it difficult to navigate to those things. And I think that level of like even just saying like hi subscriber or whatever would let me feel like okay at least they know that I'm logged in and so there's I think th- those are just little minor hiccups but they I think as you smooth them out as you learn more how to kind of facilitate easy access over the course of this season and probably next season I think those will become less obvious and so then I think the whole experience becomes more positive as a result. Yeah, that's a really good call out Taylor. There've been some of those like little nitty gritty things in the interface. I've also noticed that, like, clicking on Explorer MLS Season Pass, it's like, well, 
Wait, do you not remember me? Do I have to re-log yeah. in? There are some of those questions. Also, at the beginning of the year, there was lots of, of confusion about, hey, how do I stop seeing scores? Like, I, I'm not able to watch all these games live. I, you shouldn't display scores automatically in the interface. You should have to turn that feature on rather than the other way around. I think that gave a lot of folks some issues, but it seems like that's been mostly smoothed over. So there have been some of those little bumps. I think a lot of that's to be expected. Honestly, that doesn't mean they should get a pass for it, but launching something like this, Apple's never really gone this deep into sports programming before. And MLS has never had this experience either. So I think there were always going to be some challenges. On the whole, I've been kind of pleasantly surprised by how good things have been on the interface and, and with the production quality. Some things that I, I haven't liked, I mentioned having all the folks in the stadium, like the broadcast teams, the producers, that kind of thing. You don't get enough hits from them. Like we don't see their faces enough, in my opinion. Now, I, I'm not always turning into like pregame shows and that kind of thing because there are 87 games and I'm, I'm trying to really dig into what's happening on the field. But from what I have, and maybe this is outdated and I invite folks to tell me that it is because that would be great. Like we're not seeing Taylor Twelman and Jake Zivin in, in booth. Like we're not seeing, or at least we're not seeing a lot of them. Like we're not seeing them for a, a long hit pregame on camera. We're not seeing them at halftime. That really gives you the feel that these people are there and that they're involved in the environment and they can provide insight. I feel like when you just hear them and don't see them, it's not as blatantly obvious to folks that they actually are there. I know they're there because I know some of these people and it, it, they tweet about it and you see pictures. Like we get the idea, but I don't know that that's conveyed as clearly as it could be on the broadcast. So that's one thing. And Taylor, I just don't love, I think I'm, I'm growing stronger in my conviction about this. I don't love that all the games are on at the same time. You know, it, it's, it's hard to keep track of stuff. I'm kind of used to going back through and, and watching games afterwards because it's it's it was always impossible to watch every game in a live time slot before. It's always going to be impossible, even as MLS continues to expand. Like it's going to get harder and harder. But you know, maybe spread it out a little bit. Try to pencil out a Friday night slot or a Monday night slot, or you know, compress things just a bit less on Saturday. Maybe put one or two games on Sunday every day. Spread things out. Like I think there's a lot of room to diversify the time slots that they're operating in. I think that's been my biggest gripe so far. I don't know. I think yeah. that's something that's captured a lot of folks' attention so far this year. I one of my favorite things about MLS because it's like in the United States is it reminds me of watching or like in the past has been like it reminds me of watching games in Europe and living in Turkey where Champions League is on at night and so you can have a whole day and then you, that that game is still there and it feels like an event and there's games to watch that you, if you just kind of ca want to casually watch something it's there and i and i think that used to be how i consumed mls is that i would i would sort of like sunday evenings like oh i, I want something on there's a game playing saturday night oh there's a game playing saturday afternoon i'm doing dishes why not have a game on and and i think because it has become standardized it's great that you can get it on replay but I do miss that sort of like, oh, there's a game on now. Sweet. That feeling of like, oh, cool. There's something I can watch. I do enjoy that sort of randomness. Again, maybe that's a, a, a me thing. But I, I think that is the big knock is, is all of them starting at the same time or most of them starting at the same time. Because like when we do get that one Sunday game and it's two exciting teams, it feels like a really exciting gift rather than sort of what I would expect to be more so standardized. Um, so that's one thing. I haven't watched, and it sounds like maybe you haven't as much either. Yep, I think we're as, talking about the same okay, thing. As much of like the studio analysis yeah. and as much of like the yeah the, the shows like that. So that's one where I feel, I don't feel like qualified to talk about it. And, and I know some of the people on the Spanish language side, and I think they were very excited that MLS seemed to be prioritizing that Apple as well. It seems like that has been a positive and gone well so far. But again, that's one that I'm, I'm less 
literally fluent in. Uh, so I don't feel as comfortable talking about, but I do like that they did prioritize not just the English language in the broadcast. So I'm guessing we'll see some of the wrinkles ironed out, some things adjusted as the deal goes on. It is the bajillion year deal, as you said, Joe. So we'll get, I think, some some ironing out, some fine tuning, uh, and maybe then I'll start watching some shows. I've only watched the uh, sort of the Twitter gifts of Sasha Kleshton and Bradley Wright Phillips being best friends, and that that has been enjoyable. That has been fun. yes. That that you know what? That's enough to bump this up from a B to a B plus, baby. Right there. It's all about <laughs> yeah. the gifts. But I'm right, I'm right around there. I think I'm, I'm a B B plus person. I still I think because everything is behind a paywall or streaming or you have to have different account. I don't even know like like if you can. I don't even look for streaming. TV apps anymore to find Premier League games, for example. I just kind of assume most of them are going to be on Peacock or Spanish language. And I think with that in mind, it's less of a big deal for me that it's all behind like an Apple TV login. Um, So I I think in some ways that is just even more convenient because I just know where they all are and I know who's going to have them as opposed to is it Fox? Is it is it ESPN or is it nobody? At least we have that clarity now. I think I'm going to provide even less clarity on our final question, Joe, which comes from Reed Richards, who took time away from being part of the Fantastic Four and uh, failing to make a good movie for a good long while. Who do you consider the greatest American manager of all time? Bruce Arena, Bob Bradley, someone else. How heavily would you weigh appointments, successful or not, in European leagues against sustained success in MLS? Joe, I have asked you to go first with, I believe, every question so far. So I will uh, start with a bit of preamble here. I found this question incredibly difficult to answer. So hard. (laughs) Uh, And sadly, it is not because there are so many really strong candidates. I think there are some strong candidates, and I think those candidates have done some things that make them less viable options. I think before the failure to qualify in 2018, I still would have had – I would have had Bruce Arena as my number one pretty clearly for what he did with UVA, then with DC, then with the U.S., maybe less so 2006, but then with the Galaxy um, and the successes he has had, it it feels like he has done the most in terms of winning, bringing through players, kind of helping establish a footprint for the United States. But 2006 being World Cup as poor, 2006 World Cup being as poor as it was combined with his role in the failure to qualify. And I think a little bit of the stubbornness on his part, which I know is his brand. I know he is, he is kind of going to have that personality of it's not that hard. We're making this too complicated. But when we fail to qualify, it's not my fault. It's other people's fault. I, you know, we did what we could. It's a bad bounce. I just think those were not great looks for him and diminished his reputation a little bit. But with Bob Bradley, I, I think he has some successes and, and I think was a, I wouldn't say a breath of fresh air, but I think he, he got the team playing a, a good style for good chunks, dealt with the injury to Charlie Davies, which sort of derailed, I think, the entire strategy of the U.S., and proved himself to be a capable game manager in that the U.S. kept going down early and then having to find ways back. And, and so I think along the way, he eventually stops, say, starting Ricardo Clark in the World Cup and instead starts Maurice Adu, and that has a huge impact. But then there's an argument of like, that takes him too long. And should we be going down inside the first 10 minutes every single time? Uh, I think that coupled with the fact that unfairly, it's the way African qualifying works, but that Egypt, for as good as they were in qualifying, they then have a bad game against Ghana. Literally one bad game in qualifying, and that's enough uh, because of the goal difference for them to, to not be able to go to a World Cup. Things don't work out 
I would guess they work out okay with La Havre, but that's a French second division team. Things obviously don't work out with Swansea. From what I understand of that Swansea appointment, it it sounds to me, from what I have heard, as though he was fully sandbagged the way you would have expected Ted Lasso to be in real life. That there was just this, who's this American? He calls it soccer. He calls it field. He tells us to get our cleats. And I, I think there was a a strong, who are you? Like vibe coming from the Swansea team. And I think that's why things ended so quickly is because the writing was on the wall. It just wasn't working. And I, and I don't really hold that as a criticism necessarily, but it is another sort of failure to succeed or failure to reach that next level. He has success with uh, LAFC, obviously, uh, less so with Toronto recently. Uh, and so I think it's, it's a good but not exceptional resume. And I think that applies to Greg Burhalter as well, who uh, I, I think has brought an even greater level of stability to the program. I, I still give him credit for a lot of the dual national recruitment, even if with him absent, they're still able to recruit dual nationals in the form of Florin Balogun. But a lot of the players you hear from talk about the the squad chemistry, the energy of that team, the locker room being fairly harmonious, with maybe one notable exception during the World Cup. Uh, and and that's a thing, Joe, I know I'm going very long. I'll try to bring this one to a close. And that's a thing that when we talk about it, where I talk about how much I think it's a value for the team to like each other, for the team to enjoy playing with each other, for the national team to enjoy being around each other, that seems to be a pretty big divide with U.S. supporters to some extent, but with most other fan bases, especially like English uh, listeners seem to have a huge reaction to that of like, who cares? They're professionals. You want the best 11 players and then you get the best out of them. It shouldn't be about vibes and it shouldn't be about liking each other. That seems to be an American identity. And maybe it is, but I think it misses the point of what I'm saying, which is that so often players choose the United States and enjoy the United States because of that energy. Those dual nationals want to play for the U.S. I'm sure part of it is because there's guaranteed minutes or more guaranteed minutes, but also it seems like it is a fun team to play for, an enjoyable team versus the weight of expectation, the burden of expectation, media scrutiny with England or with the Netherlands or with Italy or whomever, with, uh, with the uh, Mexican Federation and Mexican, Mexican media, certainly. I think the U.S. is a more enjoyable experience, and I think Greg Berhalter did a lot of work and, and has done a lot of work to make that happen, but we have concerns about his in-game management, uh, his maybe over-reliance reliance on tactical specificity at the expense of sort of letting players play, Joe Scally with some recent comments that seem to echo that sentiment. So I think there are some obvious contenders. I don't remember Bora Militinovic enough to really say, yep, he is the one. Uh, I think the 94 players would say he was, but I, I can't speak to that with a level of sincerity. So I would say of, of those, those are the kind of three main contenders for me, and I think I'm inclined to say Bruce Arena is top, but I can be swayed either way, and I don't think any of them has like a head and shoulders above the rest case. Yeah, I mean, if if lacrosse is the tiebreaker, then Bruce is obviously top of the list. I mean, you talk about a guy who's in the National Lacrosse the Hall thing, of Fame right? and yeah. the National Soccer Hall of Fame. Like, this is this is somebody who really knows how to coach. No, I mean, this is hard. I don't have an answer, to be honest, Reed. I wish I did. Bruce Arena will always be in these conversations, but I really struggle with Kuva. Just like you said, Taylor, a lot of the, the, the same things that you mentioned I would echo. Bob Bradley beat Spain in 2009, lost to Brazil in the, in the final of that Confederations Cup. That was an amazing moment, one of the highest profile moments in the U.S. men's national team's history. But one doesn't really stand out from the other. Like, like it, it's not like there's a clear answer. It's not like there's a clear 
obvious greatest of all time. I think it's it's a lot too early for Greg Berhalter. I think he does deserve a lot of credit for establishing what seems to be a, a positive and lasting culture with the U.S. men's national team. But, I mean, his his time with the U.S. had ups, for sure, beating Mexico twice, you know, back-to-back tournaments in, in 2021 was massive, and a, a promising performance at the World Cup was was cool, but not really remarkable for this U.S. team. So I don't think Berhalter's on the list. You're talking about European appointments in the question read, if that is your real name. Jesse Marsh's appointments have been really impressive and, like, higher than any other manager, American manager in history on the men's side, certainly. But feels too early. Like, he hasn't really had success outside of RB Salzburg, which is a place where it seems pretty easy to have success. So it's hard to weigh that. The one that I'll bring in, in my spirit of not giving it an answer, is Tony DeChico, who coached the U.S. women's national team from 1994 to 1999, and he won a World Cup. And as far as I can tell, he's the only American manager to have won a World Cup. So I'm going to go with Tony DeChico because of that. Man, Joe, that is a crafty answer, my friend, because Jill Ellis is, what, English-American? Born in England, so I I guess we're, we're saying... She only half counts, so she's half an exceptional manager. I do think she's a very good manager. I think what we see now, in hindsight, is that she did a very good job of trying to harness that competitive spirit of that team, as ruthless as it may have been, to get the best out of them when you win two World Cups. Uh, you probably deserve quite a bit of uh, credit. Uh, but if we're going with, yeah, like purely American, Tony DiCicco is a great, great answer, Joe. Well done, my friend. Well, Thank done. you. I needed, a, I needed a loophole. I mean... The U.S. was really talented in 1999. And this is where this whole conversation is difficult because how do you evaluate a manager? It's so it's it's fully intangibles, right? We're not in the locker room. We don't know what's going on. We might learn things later, and, and in some cases we do. But, like, how what, what how much does Jill Ellis impact the U.S. women's national team? How much does Tony DeChico actually impact that 99 team? I'm sure in lots and lots of ways, but it's just impossible for us to measure them. Like, how much did Bruce Arena really play a part of, at Kuva. And I think you can point to tactical things. You can point to personal relationship stuff for a lot of these different managers, but it's just really hard slash impossible to fully quantify this stuff. So it, ultimately it's objective no matter what. And I needed a loophole and Tony Chico did some, some really impressive stuff for the U.S. Women's National Team. So he is my answer. Bear with me, Joe. I think that's a great answer. Where is a club, like where is a decently sized club that could theoretically hire Jesse Marsh right now. Like uh, there's reports that Pioli is going to leave Milan. I doubt Milan is going for Jesse Marsh, yeah. but like a club where he could end up and be expected to compete. Uh, I, I'm kind of, my brain goes back to the Bundesliga. Yep. Maybe like if we're talking about competing for champions league spots, you could look at, I don't know what the managerial situations are for these clubs, but like Wolfsburg or Freiburg, maybe somewhere it, in that right. tier. Here we go. Let's say, thank you for jo- for jogging this. Uh, Xavi Alonso has had a massive turnaround, done very, very well for Bayer Leverkusen, is a manager who I think already is being linked with other gigs and is likely to move on at some point. Um, maybe not this summer, but he is linked with Tottenham. So let's say, let's say that Xavi Alonso goes to Tottenham and there's a vacancy and, and Leverkusen bring in Jesse Marsh, not saying this is likely to happen. It's all just a hypothetical building too. Jesse Marsh then somehow motivates that team and they win the Bundesliga. Does that automatically make him the best American manager if he wins one of the biggest leagues in Europe? Like yeah. even if he's never managed the US, even with the the kind of failures or lack of success, however you want to see it with the other clubs, 
I think like the bar is somewhat that low that he becomes part of that conversation. If Jesse Marsh were to do a Leicester, like I think right there, it's if he won the Premier League, uh, as unlikely as it is. Yeah, like so that's that's kind of where things are, right? You don't necessarily have to have managed the USMNT to be in that conversation, but I think you have to have pretty sizable success at the same time. Yeah, you, you do. The bar is really low. Like I think that's what we got into, certainly on the men's side for this. It, it's super, super low having some European success because realistically a U.S. manager, I know, I know Marsh did some good stuff with Salzburg and, and you know, was appointed at Leipzig and that those are both impressive things. I don't think they're enough to automatically put him in that conversation. Taking a club like Leverkusen, maybe even out of the Champions League group stage, although keep forgetting that we're going to the Swiss style next year, baby. So the, the group stage looks a lot different and I'm not entirely sure if it's going to be harder or easier for teams or whatever. That's a separate conversation, but the bar is low in some impressive European success, even in a single season would probably get someone over that bar. Oh boy. It's a strange one, man. It's just a really odd one. Cause Bruce arena, I think I will acknowledge because of the Virginia connection, because of the DC connection, I think I rate him really highly. Even if there are many people in the industry who would say, to your point, he's a lacrosse coach who then started coaching soccer and, and is a good coach. I think he's a very good coach sort of regardless of the sport. But I think as a result, I don't see him as purely a soccer guy who knows the ins and outs and knows all the tactics. And and I mean, maybe he does now, but I don't think that it, that is his brand. I think if the U.S. had qualified for 2018, if he had helped lead that turnaround, even if they just barely scraped through, even if it was the fourth place playoff and they win that one and they go and they have a mediocre tournament, I think it's head and shoulders Bruce Arena. Kuva really hurts him because now you have 2002, exceptional. 2006, I believe the worst team at the tournament or one of the worst teams at the tournament. Maybe that was 98. Uh, And then the failure to qualify. So he has one good tournament, one bad tournament, and one that he is at least partially responsible for the U.S. not being there. It brings the average down, even with the successes in Major League Soccer and with college soccer. I think it's still a positive. I think he's still probably the best candidate. But again... It's just not nearly as clear cut as I would like it to be. You can tell by how long I'm taking to answer this question that it was one that I spent far and away the most time thinking about last night and this morning uh, yeah. in the lead up to this episode. Yeah, it's it's hard. Like there, there's no clear and obvious answer. You can make arguments for any of these people, but the reality is we're still waiting for a generational coaching talent or, or someone maybe with just better luck that that finds these jobs and, and does well and can ride away for an extended period of time. Like we're still waiting for that stuff. It just, it just really hasn't happened for a male American manager at this point over a sustained period of time. And until it does, I think Tony DeChico is an exceptional answer, not just for winning, but because that is a team that at least for, I think my generation kickstarts so much enthusiasm for the women's game and for the U S women's national team makes so many of those players, household names. He is not solely responsible for that, but he get, does get at least some credit. So I think the Chico is a great answer, and it's the one I feel most comfortable with. Well done, Joe Lowry. Boom, baby. We did it. <laughs> Started with Balogun. Right. Ended with the Chico. Right. U.S. at both ends. Good day. Joe Joe with some W's today, with some big old W's. We hope Florin Balogun brings more W's to the USMT program. Joe, one last thing for me would be, I did not realize, maybe I've just been that checked out from U.S. stuff, that... With the Nations League draw working the way it does, I Mexico. That, yeah, I did not think that was happening. I figured we'd get a semifinal against Panama or Canada, and then we'd have the final against Mexico if we both won. 
It's USA-Mexico as their next game. Do you think Florin Balogun will be there? Yes, you do? Yes. Okay, great. I'm excited to see him start. I'm excited to talk about that game with you. The lead-up to that game, and certainly when that game happens, we will be talking about it and reviewing it uh, shortly thereafter. For now, Joe Lowry, thank you for bringing all the knowledge today. Uh, I very much enjoyed it. Ah, best day ever, Taylor. Best day ever. Let's go. <laughs> I'm assuming you mean because of this scintillating back and forth we've had. Yes, not because, solely because, because of I get to see your face and because we got to talk about Sporting Kansas City and Toronto FC. Yeah, of That's exactly what I <laughs> That's mean. That's it. That's what you needed. That's yep. what you needed. Listeners, hopefully it was also what you needed. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll talk to you again tomorrow for some listener questions.